Welcome to the first episode of Sass Mouth Dames podcast. Each episode will celebrate a standout woman's picture from the era between 1929 and 1959, when Hollywood made intelligent films that put women at the center of the narrative universe. My first Sass Mouth Dame is Miriam Hopkins in Woman Chases Man from 1937. Miriam's legacy should be better known. She gave so many indelible performances on the screen. You can watch the screwball gem on dailymotion.com. The only sensible reaction after watching a bunch of Miriam Hopkins pictures from the 1930s is to wonder why isn't she worshipped unabashedly en masse today? When her name comes up, many people immediately associate her in terms of a rivalry with Betty Davis, one that preceded Betty's feud with Joan Crawford. Folks automatically dismiss her and align their sympathies with Betty. I'll get back to that later. Among the scenes depicting a woman's libido on film, Miriam Hopkins lolling around on a bed lamenting the fact that she's not a gentleman should rank at the top. She's remembered for that sex pot role as Gilda in Design for a Living from 1933, where she plays a woman enjoying a luscious three-way romance courtesy of Ernest Lubitsch. Or else people recall her in the lead for the story of Temple Drake, perhaps one of the most salacious pre-codes adapted from William Faulkner's novel Sanctuary. Miriam did not have to rely on plots about polyamory or rape with a corn cob to portray sexually dynamic women. Miriam showed audiences that nice girls had a healthy sex drive. She once said in an interview, When I can't sleep, I don't count sheep. I count lovers. And by the time I reach 38 or 39, I'm asleep. Miriam gets lost in the shuffle in favor of other screen goddesses from the era. She did not announce her desire in the same way that the other women did on screen. Miriam didn't lower her lids and hug the shadows like Marlena Dietrich. She did not fall into a swoon like Garbo, nor did she adopt a suggestive slouch like Jean Harlow, and she didn't drape herself in Luke's high fashion like Joan Crawford. Miriam, often buttoned up to her neck with a sober bow laced under her throat, could make a prim skirt suit appear as seductive as a silk bias-cut gown. Her trademark used splayed hands across her hips and abdomen, as if to hold firmly in place the seed of desire. Miriam never left you in any doubt when her characters were gasping for it, especially in Woman Chases Man from 1937. Posters for the screwball classic label her a she-wolf, a stand-in for women and men in the audience who want to ogle Joel McRae. She's hot to trot for him in every scene. Instead of obvious touches with wardrobe or boilerplate mechanics of allure, Miriam creates a subtle version of a grown woman's sexual appetite. Miriam also straddles the line between seduction and screwball antics better than anyone, Carol Lombard included. Not many women can shift from a George Raft impression, talking out of both sides of her mouth at breakneck speed, in one scene to salivating over Joel McRae in the next. Her desire for McRae knocks against the restraints of a genteel background to obliterate distinctions between a lady and a dame. Miriam's debutante accent announces cotillions, mint juleps on the veranda, boarding schools, and echoes those familiar rules about what nice girls do, and instead blows them a raspberry. 
As Virginia Travis, a struggling architect, Miriam conspires with Charles Winninger's failed entrepreneur, B.J. Nolan, to take his son through the hurdles so that Kenneth, played by McRae, will shell out from his inheritance and fund an experimental social housing project called Nolan Heights. But she's distracted from the plan to eradicate tenements once the tall drink of man-water arrives. Suddenly, the petite blonde looks like a wolf in grandma's clothing when her eyes land on the sun. Joel looks so delectable from his first scene when he's introduced in a manner that's usually reserved for a socialite character in film, say Claudette Colbert or Barbara Stanwyck, for example. Since we are in woman's picture territory, our gaze lingers over Joel McRae lounging ship deck wearing glamorous black sunglasses with all the other gorgeous rich young folks. He looks good in a suit, too, when he turns up to lecture his father about fiscal responsibility. Initially, Miriam's only interest in the house was checking the pillars and the floorboards to evaluate its architectural integrity. But then she latches eyes on McRae's exquisite design once he shows up with two sketchy characters in tow. When he boasts about having cured his nearsightedness with eye exercises, Miriam looks him over and sagely observes, you must have exercised all over. Then she takes a large step back and away from McRae, recognizing his proximity may prove troublesome. She doesn't trust herself to stay too close. She may lose the run of herself. Other people notice. Leona Maracle plays a scam artist named Nina, who intends to marry McRae for his money and then feather a nest with her lover, played by Eric Rhodes, whom she presents as her uncle. She's the first to remark that she doesn't like the way Virginia looks at Kenneth. Maracle's oily gigolo also notices the look and warns McRae against the tiny blonde. Sure enough, McRae notices and asks, Say, do you look at everybody like that or just me? He tells her that she shouldn't look at men that way, and you ought to do something about your eyes. When she looks at Joel, her eyes become rounder and seem like they verge on filling with tears. He makes her mouth and her eyes water. Miriam's eyes glisten with desire. Her face tells you that in her head, she's already in his arms. With Peter Pan collars and elaborate bow loops, Miriam has no trappings of seduction in the early scenes, which contrasts with the faux heiress and LeMay cut down to her sternum. Leona Maracle's character, who's visibly dressed for seduction, fails to entice McRae or even capture his attention. Meanwhile, Miriam's prim collar and balloon taffeta sleeves fail to disguise her flaming desire for McRae. After dinner the first evening, Joel administers a bit of chiropractic adjustment when she injures herself while watching the parade of crackpot inventions his father fritted away the family fortune to produce. Miriam's flustered by his maneuvers, probably because she's too distracted by what it hints about his boudoir prowess. He rocks her head back and forth before he cracks her neck to the left and right, then massages her neck and shoulders. When he assures her, I know exactly what I'm doing, Miriam liquefies. She moves from behind the desk to the sofa, and he again obliges her with soothing adjustments. Head thrown back in ecstasy, his laying of the hands narcotizes the architect. 
When she's ready to seduce him to land both a signed contract for a housing development and have a taste of his bedroom exercises, she improvises a frothy confection from the bedroom chiffon window curtains, a full two years before Vivian Lee's scarlet wore green velvet drapes to petition Clark Gable for money in Gone with the Wind. The first thing he says he likes about her is, the way you talk, so fast and interesting which serves as a reminder that we're watching a proper woman's picture. Men like to hear women talk in a woman's picture. Wearing a frothy dress with a low neckline, she drinks too much champagne and becomes woozy. So McCrae, being a gentleman, throws her over one shoulder and carries her to bed. Miriam swings her head up from resting against his back and waves as she passes Nina. She's not so blotto that she resists the opportunity to, to gloat that she's getting McCrae's personalized turndown service. A glorious screwball set piece in a tree that involves a torch lamp and a chair soon follows. Ellen Ellen Berger's biography of Miriam Hopkins, Miriam Hopkins' Life and Films of a Hollywood Rebel, notes that the cord that was supposed to secure her to the magnolia tree broke. She fell to the floor of the set and spent four days in bed to recover. Miriam always rallied for her performance. Mishap aside, the finished scene includes a hilarious bit of choreography that begins when Miriam meowing outside McRae's window for help when her robe gets stuck on a tree. Viewers know the two are destined for each other because they use the situation to play instead of doing anything sensible. When he asks her if she's having fun, Miriam milks it. Some trees are fun, but this one's just fair. She enunciates fair as if it has two syllables, a flourish that intensifies the comedic element through such ladylike exaggeration. Miriam also powders her nose for the same bit of business with humor from incongruity. What else should a lady do when you're stuck in a tree with a gigantic hunk of a man? Gallant McRae offers a floor lamp and then a chair to rescue the trapped Miriam. Once she lands in his lap on the chair, viewers realize he's impossible to resist. Tree gymnastics outside his bedroom give us a glimpse of what pleasures a screwball Adam and Eve might enjoy inside. McCray said of Miriam when they worked together on Barbary Coast from 1935, she was adorable to me, a former cowboy, trying to make good. You can see how delighted Miriam was with him and why they made five pictures together. By the end of the scene, everybody in the cast climbs in the tree or stands at the trunk. Miriam has a great gag where she pulls down one of the branches and whacks her rival on the head. She's not about to give up McCray to a woman bent on cuckolding him. Along with the saucy gusto she exhibits on screen chasing her man, Miriam Hopkins hits other key notes of woman's pictures. In her first scene, while she's cadging a job, she passes out cold in a rich man's office because she hasn't eaten in two days. Nearly every major star in the 1930s had at least one scene where she was ravenous and on the verge of collapse. Joan Crawford and Sadie McKee, Dancing Lady, The Bride Wore Red, Sylvia Sidney in 30 Day Princess, Jean Arthur in Easy Living, Anne Dvorak in I Sell Anything, and the entire cast of Stage Door. A woman passing out from hunger establishes her gumption. It's also one of the quickest ways to make audiences sympathize with the leading lady. She pleads for a job with a great speech, one that sparks a fire within every woman watching. I know what you're thinking, that I'm a girl. 
Yes, but I have a man's courage, a man's vision, a man's attack. For seven years, I've studied like a man, researched like a man. There is nothing feminine about my mind. Seven years ago, I gave up a perfectly nice engagement with a charming, wealthy old man because I chose a practical career. I left him at the church to become an architect, and today I'm ready and he's dead. Adamantine resolve enables Miriam's character to persist until the entrepreneur relents, agreeing to put her under contract, and they cook up a plan to persuade his son. Miriam's speech validates every woman in the audience who at one point in her life has had to convince some man that she had brains and talent and spades. What's also great about her speech is that we don't question her bona fides, but we do see the folly in a woman who thinks she can cloak herself from the male point of view. It's a platitude as doomed as Gilda's no-sex agreement with two hot dudes. Woman's pictures define hubris in any woman who believes she can resist Joel McRae. Miriam's speech has a thinly veiled threat at the end of it as well. She may be sw small and weak, but she's already outlasted one man, so she puts the one standing in front of her on notice. If I had one complaint about this picture, it would be that Miriam pulled Joel's hair only twice. I would have loved to have seen more than that. The picture shares the same winning dynamic from Theodore Goes Wild, released a year earlier, where Irene Dunn shows Mel Douglas how to resist the ties that bind. Here, Miriam enlightens Joel against marrying a lovely thing. He trades predictability for spontaneity and joy. Sam Goldwyn may be mocked for his cringeworthy malapropisms, except oftentimes he was dead on the money, with observations as keen as when he said that John Emerson, Anita, Anita Luce's deadbeat husband, lives by the sweat of his frow. Goldwyn had a gift for knowing a good story. He stuck to his guns, even though the picture appeared doomed from the start. Goldwyn assembled a reluctant cast and crew for the film, first titled The Princess and the Pauper, then The Woman's Touch, which eventually became Woman Chases Man. If not for Sam Goldwyn's tenacity, the picture would never have been made. The May 1937 edition of Life magazine reports that the screenwriting duo Sam and Bella Sp Spiewak abandoned the project and refused to have their names attached. Eric Hatch, who wrote for The New Yorker, took a pass. Dorothy Parker and Ben Hecht are among seven writers who took a stab at reviving Goldwyn's four-way into screwball territory. Ellen Berger explains Goldwyn's trouble finding a director. William Wyler was supposed to helm the picture, except he hated the script so much he declared it a lost cause and took a three-week salary cut and returned a $25,000 bonus uh, Goldwyn had given him to get a release. After Gregory LaCava read the script, he immediately left the studio. Despite studio executives telling Goldwyn to cut his losses at $100,000, he dug his heels in and hired John Blystone to direct and Joseph Anthony, Manny Seff, and David Hertz to doctor the script. Preview audiences laughed throughout the film, yet it opened to lukewarm re reviews. But it should be added that Bringing Up Baby was also a dud when it was released and now enjoys classic status. Miriam is bawdy, hilarious, and the one who makes everything happen. On YouTube, you can usually find other great performances from Miriam in Trouble in Paradise from 1932, Wise Girl from 1937, and Becky Sharp from 1935, which garnered her only Oscar nomination.
And Design for Living, um, one of Miriam's best from 1933, will be screened on the last night of the current round of Sassmouth Dames Film Club on the 8th of February in Dublin. Look for her other stellar films, uh, these three, Men Are Not Gods, The Old Maid, Old Acquaintance, and The Heiress. You need to know the Sassmouth Dame. The rivalry between Miriam and Betty usually favors Betty and paints Miriam as a jealous scene stealer. But Betty is far from faultless. Miriam had reason to dislike Betty at a personal and professional level. Betty had a grudge against Miriam from their days in a theater company with George Cukor as director in 1928. At the time, Miriam had the star profile and Betty was just a bit player. In a 1970 interview with Playboy, Betty claimed that Cukor fired her from the company because she wouldn't sleep around. George Cukor stated in an interview that he had nothing to do with Betty's dismissal from the company. Miriam's biographer, Ellen Berger, points out that neither did Miriam. Betty did three more plays with Cukor's company in Rochester after Miriam left the show Excess Baggage and returned to New York. Ellen Berger explains that Cukor's business partner, George Kondoff, expected new starlets to sleep with him. When Betty refused, most likely he was the one who fired her. The next stage of their feud revolved around the film adaptation of Jezebel. Miriam had played the role on the stage and owned part of the rights. She would only sell her share to Warners under the provision that she reprise her role. Warners strung her along. The whole time they had planned Betty for the part, which she played and won Best Actress for. Betty invited Miriam to a tailwaggers fundraiser. By all accounts, the two linked arms and behaved like old friends the whole evening. Miriam later found out that in addition to conducting an affair with Howard Hughes, who was then living with Catherine Hepburn, Betty had a week-long fling with Anatole Litvak, who Miriam married the year before in 1937. Miriam told a friend that Betty was, quote, a greedy little girl at a party who just had to sample other women's cupcakes. First she wanted my husband, and then she wanted Hepburn's boyfriend. While Litvak was in Warners, he convinced them to buy Dark Victory and Juarez as vehicles for Miriam, who owed the studio four pictures. Both films went to Betty Davis. Hal Wallace said they had to give Betty first pick. They gave Miriam her rejects, like Curtain Call, which Miriam called weak tea. Sam Goldwyn doled out shabby treatment toward Miriam when he changed her contract to only one picture for him and the rest at Warner's and RKO. She had little choice but to accept the old maid and Warner's alongside the queen of the lot. Miriam had hoped it would be okay since the play was good and she considered the director Edmund Goulding an old friend since the 1920s. Without her knowledge, Betty made script changes and deleted what was meant to be their first scene together. Betty replaced it with one that made her look more favorable in the introduction than Miriam. In response, Miriam began a series of little tricks, as Betty called them, to gain advantage. She would move around as Betty delivered lines so that her co-star's back would be facing the camera. Miriam would make Betty move out of her key light or do little bits of business that would draw the audience's attention away from her. Goulding said of Miriam and Betty, whatever respect they had for each other as professionals was quickly thrown out the window when one or the other didn't get her way. If it wasn't the lighting, it was the costuming or the camera angles. The studio exploited the feud. 
They staged Betty and Miriam in costume with boxing gloves added to pose for the press. Warner's executive Hal Wallace said those two girls really hated each other. Luella Parsons' review of The Old Maid surmised, Swell stuff casting those two in the same picture, like steel striking steel. Miriam now bigger than ever. In 1950, Miriam said of their onset friction, It wasn't a real feud. The studio thought it would be good publicity. But it was Betty's studio, and I think I fared badly. It made me look downright rude. Their rivalry culminated in a famous scene during Old Acquaintance from 1943, when Betty shakes Miriam in a frenzy. Work stopped in Warner's lot when it was shot. Everyone wanted to see their big confrontation scene. Sure, Miriam was a notorious scene-stealer, but Betty should know one because she's guilty herself. In truth, their rivalry spurred them on to do their best work. Miriam never gossiped about their feud to the press. Betty did relentlessly. Shortly before she died, Betty said, Miriam Hopkins, she was a real bitch. She was the worst, unprofessional-behaved person. She was a terribly good actress. Now I'm going to leave you with this juicy bit from director Vincent Sherman's book, Studio Affairs. He directed Betty and Miriam in Old Acquaintance in 1943. Miriam and I got along extremely well. She was an expert comedian, and it was a pleasure to work with her. I discovered that she was from Bainbridge, Georgia, not far from where I was born, and occasionally we indulged our southern accents. Because I had been an actor, I sometimes made the mistake of reading a line for a performer the way I wanted to hear it. Ideally, a director should explain the intent of the line and allow the actor to find his or her own reading, and often it was simpler and quicker to convey the thought by reading the line as I felt it should be. In spite of our common heritage, Miriam balked. I want you to know, she snipped, the only other director I'd allow to read a line for me is Ernest Lubitsch. Thank you for the compliment, I replied, but I have neither his accent nor his talent. The following week, Davis had paid a visit to the set with her agent, Lou Wasserman, then the head of MCA Talent Agency. As I finished the scene, I saw them standing at the back at the edge of the set. I walked over, said hello, and thought surely Betty would refer to our first meeting and say something friendly like, well, at last we're working together, but she didn't. As I waited for her to speak before I said anything more, she asked in a formal and reserved manner, as though we'd never met before, how are things going? Very well, I replied. Why don't you have a look at what we've shot so far and decide for yourself? Oh, may I, she said, as if I had the power to say no. I was well aware that this was precisely the reason she'd come to the studio in the first place. If she didn't like the footage, she had the clout to have me taken off the film and to ask for a different director. An hour later, a phone call came from the projection room. It was Davis. Her reserve was gone. Exuberant and enthusiastic, she said she was delighted with what she saw and asked when I wanted her to report for work. I thanked her and told her the assistant would let her know. I went home that night feeling elated and looked forward to the next day. Betty arrived promptly the next morning ready for her rehearsal. Her first shot was her entrance in the film as Kit is discovered sleeping on a train when it arrives in her hometown. I was waiting for her to ask me how I saw her character, what I thought of her relationship with Miriam, and how I visualized the entire film. For a while, it looked as though she wasn't interested in my opinion and was going to play Kit as she conceived her. At the last moment, she asked me if I had any specific ideas about the role. 
I was relieved since I had a very definite concept of Kit. I suggested that, in contrast to Millie's flighty superficiality, Kit was a relaxed, intelligent, sophisticated, and unpretentious young woman who looked at the world and at Millie with an amused tolerance. She could see through Millie's often silly behavior, yet remained loyal to her because of their early years together. I added that I felt Kit's personality was very close to Betty's own. She stared at me quizzically for a moment, and I thought she was going to say, how the hell do you know what I'm like? But she didn't. I assumed that my evaluation of Betty's self-concept was fairly accurate. Years later, in a television interview, she was asked if she had ever played a role close to herself. She named Kit. I was pleased with her first day's rushes and or dallies. Contrary to all the rumors that she was temperamental, I found her cooperative, highly intelligent, and a sensitive actress. When I'd ask her to alter a line reading or gesture, she simply asked for a logical explanation for the change. In fact, I enjoyed discussing scenes with her, the intent and psychological nuances, and felt that we stimulated each other. Uncomfortable watching herself on the screen, she didn't like to go to the rushes. When Blank came on the set on his daily visit, he complimented everyone. Then he took me aside. I don't know what you're telling Betty, he whispered, but whatever it is, keep it up. It's her best performance she's given in a long time. She's simple, warm, and winning, and she's not acting. Later, I told Betty what Blank thought she was given a fine performance without his remark about her not acting. That's funny, she chuckled. I go home every night thinking that I haven't done anything at all. Tactfully, I indicated that just because she wasn't playing a highly dramatic, neurotic role didn't mean she wasn't giving a good performance. As shooting progressed, the two leading ladies had more scenes to play together. I noticed that Miriam became increasingly preoccupied with where I intended to place the camera. I began also to detect an edge in Betty's work. When I asked her what was bothering her, she told me about a conflict that had happened between her and Miriam during the making of The Old Maid. You watch her, Betty explained. She's always pulling little tricks, trying to upstage me. And she'll do just what she did in The Old Maid. As my character gets older, hers will get younger. You'll see. Their enmity was well known on the lot, but I hadn't been too concerned about it. Earlier, when I discussed the situation with Blank, he'd advised me to ignore the whole thing and regard it with amusement, as he said Goulding had done. Slowly, I began to see what Betty meant. Although any one of Miriam's actions was trivial, as the days went on, her suggestions began to mount into a problem. Typically, one day, she came to me with an idea. Wouldn't a long cigarette holder capture Millie's superficiality? It seemed appropriate, so I approved the uh, harmless prop. Later, I realized I'd made a serious error. At crucial moments in a scene, Miriam would wave the cigarette holder about frantically, drawing attention to herself and away from Betty. Once she went so far as to wave it across the lens as Betty's face, at Betty's face, while I was shooting her over the shoulder. When I admonished her, she pleaded complete innocence, and in her sweet southern drawl said, Vincent, dear, I was only trying to match out what I did before when the camera was on me. Each day, I'd catch her doing something in a scene to distract from Betty. She'd straighten a picture or rearrange flowers in a vase when she should be concentrating on what Betty was saying to her. Knowing that the eye of the audience always goes to movement, she'd always be ready with some little move, until I had to ask her to stand still and stop moving about. Eventually, her insecurity grew to the point where she tried to influence my staging of scenes. 
One morning, we were about to rehearse a long sequence when, between Kit and Millie, that covered almost five pages of dialogue. When Miriam, thinking I was going to put the camera where I was standing with cameraman Sol Polito, made one of her little suggestions. How would it be if I let the two of them feel their way through the scene before I told them when and where they should move? She was hoping, of course, to work out a way for the camera to favor her. Skeptical but cautious, I told her that I would be delighted and if she and Betty would stage the scene for me. Betty agreed to the experiment. She entered Millie's apartment and, after a greeting from Millie, waited for Miriam to make the first move. But Miriam just stood in the center of the room, her eyes darting back and forth from Betty to me to Saul as we watched the rehearsal. Finally, Betty initiated the action, but each time she would start to move, Miriam would take a parallel step. Whenever Saul and I shifted our position a few inches, Miriam would adjust her stance so that she would be in a favorable position. The two ladies played the entire five pages practically riveted to the center of the room. I suppressed my amusement, thanked them, then pointed out that they hadn't made a specific move during the five pages. Betty, realizing it was true, broke into a hearty laugh. Miriam did not find it the least bit amusing. I resumed my job of staging the scene. As the day wore on, Miriam's insecurity persisted. Betty, usually unconcerned about the camera, began to defend herself. She fought with Miriam point for point to keep equally in view. I was losing my patience with the sparring. In a loud voice, enough for everyone to hear, I said, Ladies, sometimes I feel like I'm not directing this picture. I'm refereeing it. Betty roared with laughter, which only endeared her to me. Once again, Miriam was not amused. In the days that followed, I was so preoccupied with the conflict between the two ladies that I had no time to think about my growing affection for Betty. The only thing I knew was that I felt a genuine artistic kinship with her and hoped that she felt the same way about me. But I was not sure. She always maintained a cool dignity. The day for the big scene between Miriam and Betty approached, and as it turned out, the confrontation of their characters bore resemblance to real life. In the script, Kit finally loses patience with Millie's antics. She grabs her by the shoulders, shakes her violently, then shoves her down into a nearby sofa and says, sorry, but I've been wanting to do that for a long time, and exits. In the final film, she only says, sorry, and then exits. The rest of the line was cut. I was sure Betty was relishing her revenge. Word about the upcoming scene began to spread around the studio. Stories were also going around about the growing antagonism between the two ladies. Photographers from Life magazine asked for permission to come on set for that day with their cameras. I had no objection, but Warner said it's not his idea of good publicity and denied them access to the set. The day before we were to shoot the scene, Betty warned me that she was sure Miriam would pull something, some kind of stunt to avoid doing the scene the way it was written. The script calls for me to shake her, Betty explained, and that's exactly what I intend to do. I reassured her that I would not compromise or hedge the scene. We would play it to the hilt. By now, my sympathies were entirely with Betty. I had seen the pattern in Miriam's behavior. She devised everything she could take, she could think of to take the film away from Betty, including making herself look younger in the film as Betty aged, as Betty had warned me she would do. I spoke to the makeup man. He was trying to control it. Before shooting began the next morning, I was summoned to Miriam's dressing room. 
In a pathetic southern drawl, she said, Vincent, dear, I know Betty is supposed to shake me, but I'd appreciate it if you wouldn't let her be too violent. You see, I slept badly last night, and this morning I have a little crick in my neck. I promised her I would speak to Betty. When I mentioned it to Betty, she screamed, I knew it. I knew she'd come up with something. I calmed her down and told her to do the scene as she felt and not to worry about Miriam. I rehearsed the dialogue and movement very carefully, except for the shaking, praying that we would get the scene right with the first take. The moment of shooting came. The camera rolled. All went well until Betty put her hands on Miriam's shoulders. Miriam relaxed her neck so completely that her head began to wobble about grotesquely, like a doll with a broken neck. The scene was ridiculous, and as Betty turned to exit, she glanced at me. She was furious. I took Miriam aside and explained that her head wobbling was unnatural and grotesque and that she would resist the shaking the scene um, to appear honest. Her reply was innocence personified. I was only trying to cooperate, she said. After two or three more takes, I was finally able to get the scene right. By the time Miriam was finished in the picture, she and Betty were not speaking to each other. Before she left, however, she said goodbye to me. I'm sorry if I caused you any trouble, she added, but because this is Betty's home lot, I was sure you'd favor her over me since I'm only the guest star. I explained to her that if my own mother was in the film, I would not favor her over anyone else. As a director, my job was to favor the film only, not any one player. I am sure, however, that the um, feud between Miriam and Betty was tough on both sides, but again, they did their best work because of it. Thanks for sticking with me through the first episode of the podcast. I hope you'll join me next time when I'm talking about um, Lana Turner and a life of her own. Thanks very much. I got an island in the Pacific, and everything about it is terrific. I got the sun to take.